0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The famous American has created a buzz of attention in the restaurant. The chef prepares one of his signature dishes and watches as the celebrity tucks in with gusto. A small smile plays around his lips. They're busy now, but soon the restaurant will start to empty. And then he can strip down out of his kitchen whites and dress once again in the clothes that help him to blend in on the streets on which he hunts. It's just a matter of time until he takes his next victim. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 120, the serial crimes of Fanwell Kumalo. In many of the cases I discuss on the podcast, we see how young South Africans struggle significantly with social and economic hardships, so I was excited to come across the podcast that's sponsoring today's episode. Change in One Generation is a new podcast series about young South Africans rising above hardship and adapting to change. The show is hosted by legendary journalist Ruda Landman and leadership expert Dr. Frank Magwegue. Subscribe to Change in One Generation on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za for more information. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And... It's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Other reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shoutouts to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you. To Johann Harhoff, Simamke Latiso, Talita Lowe, Natty, Herkiefel Yun, Rihanna Urdendal, Crisulo Konemu, Simone de Brain, Antoinette Huson, Alice Taylor Surridge, and Bonisile Mkhidi for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month. A shout out on the pod and other exclusive contents, including q and a s with me as and when it's available, it's a minimum of one dollar a month. I think you should do it, please, and thank you. Keba. I've been asked several times if I'll be covering the crimes of Herot Ackerman, who was recently found guilty of a massive seven hundred charges relating to the rape of minors as well as the possession and creation of child abuse material. While it's definitely a case I'd like to cover in the future, my sources tell me that there are still additional investigations ongoing in this case, so I'll be leaving that for now. It was while I was doing some reading up on that case, though, that I came across another highly prolific serial rapist who, although he operated in quite a different context, was at the time, and probably still is, the most prolific serial child rapist in South Africa. In researching this episode, I used several different academic articles which were written to include this case, as well as several media articles. So let's get into episode 120, The Serial Crimes of Fanwell Kamalo. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. In this episode, as in any other related to rape, I will not be naming any of the survivors. In addition to them being rape survivors, sadly all of the victims are also minors, so this of course adds an additional layer of necessity for anonymity. As such, I cannot follow the usual formula of focusing on the victims predominantly and then bringing in information about the perpetrator. But I think simply telling this story and underpinning how despicable these crimes were might be of some benefit. Fanuel Kumalo was born on the 10th of May 1962 in a village in the Free State Province of South Africa. He was the oldest of 14 siblings. It's quite difficult to know how much of what has been said about Kumalo's early history is true, because especially the period during which he claims to have been in a particular army unit was very much shrouded in silence and secrecy. Kamala claims to have been a member of the 32 Battalion of the South African Defence Force. The 32 Battalion, which is sometimes called the Buffalo Battalion and occasionally referred to as the Terrible Ones, was an infamous battalion of the SANDF, which formed in 1975 and was disbanded in 1993 this elite light infantry battalion became infamous for the atrocities it was alleged to have committed. The members of the battalion were highly trained and Kamalo claimed that he was a part of that group for two years. He said he'd been forced to join the group to pay off a loan he'd taken from the government, which would fund his studies at catering school. After he left the army, Kumalo said that he began to travel to various countries in Africa, including Zambia, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zanzibar, and Morocco, conducting research into the ingredients and cuisine styles those countries used. Then he returned to South Africa and set about perfecting a cooking style that would put him on the map. Kumalo had quite a distinctive physical appearance. Although he would never publicly confirm how he came to have these particular physical attributes, the squint eyes and noticeable limp Kamalo had by the time he was an adult do seem to point to the possibility of him having served some time in the army, and perhaps having been injured. Strabismus, commonly called squint eye, is caused due to nerve damage or problems in the eye muscles. When some eye muscles around the eyes are weaker than others, they are unable to work together effectively. As a result, one eye may look at one object while another eye turns in a different direction and looks at another object. While most people with strabismus are born with it, it can also be caused by trauma to the head. The existence of this strabismus means one of two things. Either Kamalo is lying about having been in the army because a physical condition like this paired with a significant limp, if he had that before joining the army, would very likely have ruined his chances at being admitted to the army at all, and especially not into a highly trained battalion. If he's not lying, this means he may have experienced some form of injury during his time in the army, which resulted in these physical attributes. Why am I focusing so much on the man's physical appearance? Well, because those two factors would become very important in this case, but we'll get into that later. Fanuel Kamalo's career as a chef really took off in the 90s. He would work for several top-notch restaurants, including Iavaya, which was first in Yeovil and then moved to Rosebank. At these restaurants, he essentially became the chef to the stars. Visiting celebrities from all over the world raved about his dishes, and he cooked for, among others, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and Iman. Kumalo developed his own brand of cuisine, which was an exotic mix of various flavors from different African countries. He cooked with uncommon meats like crocodile and hippo, which visitors from the US and the UK found very exciting prospects. Kamalo was becoming a huge name in the culinary industry. Everyone wanted to eat his food and be photographed with the rising star of the culinary world. While Kamalo's career star was rising, he seemed to struggle significantly in relationships. By the 90s, he was in his third marriage with three children from his previous marriages. I always find it interesting when people who are eventually found to be sex predators have multiple relationships like this. Of course, having been married three times or just general unsuccessful track records in relationships is not necessarily a sign of any type of pathology. But with these types of individuals specifically, I know that even investigators often want to speak with previous partners to understand what their relationships were like and if a pattern of either abuse or Or dysfunctional behavior can be established. We don't know why Kumalo's first two marriages ended, but his third wife's initial reaction to his eventual arrest would be very interesting. We'll get into that in a bit. In May 1997, police in Greater Johannesburg began to receive reports of child rapes. As is so common in such cases, and because rape is generally not well-reported or indeed often well-handled at a station level, it would take a long time and far too many cases for a pattern to be established. While South Africa is very good at identifying serial murderers, I often feel that this skill set does not extend as well to serial rape. In addition to the fact that rape is so incredibly prevalent At this time in South Africa, we didn't have an established DNA database that could link cases. So even though DNA was being taken from the victims, there was no way for the SAPS to know that, for instance, an eight-year-old girl raped in Yeovil was a DNA match in terms of perpetrator to a 14-year-old victim in another jurisdiction of Johannesburg. Still today, we often rely on wide-awake investigators to pick up similarities in modus operandi. And if the crimes cross jurisdictions, this often only happens through chance conversations. Often it is SAPS members in forensic fields, such as DNA collection or forensic sketch artists, that will put the pieces together. That's because such members work in more than one jurisdiction, and will be called out to crime scenes or to engage with victims in many different areas, and they'll start to notice the similarities. This has been the case in more than one serial crime I've covered on this podcast, and it goes to show the importance of having members that are devoted to their jobs and to justice, rather than just going through the motions. The crimes in question here were linked due to modus operandi initially. All the victims were between the ages of 8 and 14, indicating a pedophilic serial rapist. Some later reports would broaden that age range to 20 years old, but this seems to have changed once the facts were on the table, and it definitely seems that the oldest victim was 14. The way that the perpetrator approached his victims, engaged with them, and eventually lured them away became a key part of linkage evidence. The girls all said that the man had been very nice and kind initially, joking with them and making them feel comfortable. He often claimed to be in a position of power. One of his most common claims was that he was a policeman which of course is going to get the attention of any child. He would use this claim of power and the connection he quickly formed with his victims to lure them to a second location. Some girls were lured from areas where there were many people to more desolate areas. One girl was lured from the streets into an abandoned sports centre and the pattern of behavior extended into the act of rape itself and beyond. Although the perpetrator was charming and kind when he initially engaged with the girls, as soon as he had them alone, he changed completely. He was violent, threatening, and immediately put them into a state of fear. One victim recounted being asked to choose whether she wanted to die or be raped after the rapes, the perpetrator often told the girls to clean themselves, presumably to remove physical evidence. In more than half of the cases that would be linked to this perpetrator, though, DNA was obtained from rape kits. but Sadly, it would be useless until they had a suspect to compare it to. After the rapes, the perpetrator would threaten the girls and their families. The ones who he'd made believe he was a police officer would be told that he could easily find out where they lived and no one would believe them if they told about what happened. With all of these similarities, it started to become clear that this was the same suspect, but it would be another very clear piece of evidence that would confirm this. The girls all spoke of the man with the strange eyes and the limp. Now, I want to be clear here that I'm not in any way attempting to shame or insult anyone living with strabismus or squint eyes, but it's understandably something that would stand out to a child, and when paired with the violence and threats they'd experienced at the same man's hands, it became a feature that haunted them. Sadly, the victim count in terms of child rapes in Johannesburg which would eventually be identified as a series, would climb to double digits before a task team was established. But in early 2001, a task team of 15 members was eventually approved by SAPS management and the hunt for what seemed like South Africa's most prolific child rapist was on. The task team worked incredibly hard once they were formed often putting in 12-hour shifts for weeks in a row. Unfortunately, because the judgment for this case is sealed to protect the anonymity of the victims and perhaps to protect the integrity of future investigations of this kind, we don't know how the perpetrator in this case was eventually connected. But one afternoon in May 2001, one of the members of the task team, Superintendent Barry Britz, Located and attempted to arrest Fanwell Kamalo on the streets of Berea. Kamalo attempted to escape from Brits, but the officer chased him down and managed to get cuffs on him. Kamalo's powers of persuasion were put on full display as he called out to passersby to help him, claiming that the police officer who was in plain clothes was trying to rob him. The passers-by were so convinced by Kamalo's pleas that they insisted on accompanying Brits to the police station to confirm his identity. Kamalo was arrested on 24 counts of rape. Those were just the cases they'd been able to link by that point. Newspaper headlines screamed about the arrest of the celebrated chef in the days to come, and even as Kamalo appeared in court for the first time, Behind the scenes, the investigation was still going full steam ahead. With Kamala's DNA taken, forensics could now proceed with matching him conclusively to the rapes in which rape kits had been carried out and DNA samples had been obtained. In the first few hours after his arrest, Kamala refused to talk to investigators. Eventually, the team would ask legendary detective Pete Balefaltz to try his hand at cracking Kamala. Bailafelt recalls in his book, Bailafelt's Dossier of a Serial Sleuth, that he'd initially struggled just as much as the others to develop any connection with Kamala. Eventually, frustrated, he told Kamala he was going to go for a beer, and then he'd come back, and maybe he'd like to talk then. He did just that, apparently, and he says when he did return, Kumalo did start talking to him. The nature of that conversation is not documented, but it does seem that Kumalo may have made some admissions at that time, only to turn around on that later and claim he was innocent. There are also photographs of Kumalo published in the Star newspaper at the time, where he seemed to have been conducting pointings out of various scenes where it was believed some of the victims had been raped. Of course, the main focus of much of the reporting at this time was the horrific twist that someone who was so well-respected and much-loved in the culinary community could also be a serial child rapist. Kumala's wife at the time was interviewed by a journalist, and the woman was insistent that her husband was innocent. She showed the reporter reams of articles she'd cut out from newspapers in which Kamala was spoken about in glowing terms. She told the journalist that if anyone thought that this man could be capable of what he was being accused of, they were crazy. I think this type of denial early on by a spouse who's had no idea what her husband's been up to is quite normal. I've been listening to a few podcasts about women who discover their husbands are viewing or creating child abuse material and although at the time of recording the interview they've accepted their spouse's guilt, almost always their first instinct is to try and find a reasonable explanation that does not involve their partner being a paedophile. The difference comes, though, when some spouses continue to delude themselves despite extensive evidence that proves the party's guilt. In fairness, This can be as a result of coercive control and abusive elements that exist within the relationship before the partner's crimes are discovered. And no, coercive control bonds will not immediately break down just because the controller is behind bars. Very often, that type of mental conditioning can withstand significant distance and time before the abused party starts to realize that their beliefs are not valid. I'm not for a minute saying that this was the case with Kamala's wife. We don't have nearly enough information about their relationship or her ongoing behaviour toward him as the case progressed to determine that. But I do find it interesting how this dynamic plays out. As investigations continued into Fanwell Kamala, his original 24-count charge sheets would explode into more than 100 various charges, including rape, kidnapping, and robbery. The kidnapping charges came from the occasions on which he'd lured victims on false pretenses to second locations and then held them there through threats of violence. Occasionally he would take money that the girls had on them. This was undoubtedly not about the money for him as he was very well off but more likely another form of degradation and perhaps even a trophy for him to relive his crimes through. By the time the trial started in February 2003, Kamalo was facing 132 charges. 42 of those were rape. 42 different children, all under the age of 14, had accused this man of raping them. Kamalo would plead not guilty to each and every charge put to him. He approached the trial as though he were a spectator. Some of the victims would testify in court against him, and when they did, he didn't even look at them. He just sat taking notes, occasionally whispering instructions to his attorney. It soon became clear that the evidence against Kamalo was vast. Besides the similar fact evidence of modus operandi and identifications that many of the victims had made, in 23 of the 42 cases, DNA had conclusively identified Fanwell Kumalo as the perpetrator. His attorney, though, would intimate that these DNA results could have been falsified, although they couldn't explain why police would choose a man of Kumalo's public profile to attempt to frame for multiple child rapes when it would likely have been far easier to do so if they'd wanted to with a person who the public didn't know. I think one of the most shocking parts of the trial for me was Kamala's defense against the positive identifications the victims had made and in particular those two physical features that made him stand out. His squint eyes and his limp. When it was put to him that almost all the victims had in their initial statements to police recalled the man who raped them having different looking eyes and walking with difficulty, Kumalo actually denied that he possessed either attribute. He flat out denied, with the judge looking right at him, that he had squint eyes or a limp. I must admit, that my mouth hung open a bit when I read that. How invested in your own story do you have to be to think that people are going to believe what you're saying rather than what they're seeing with their own eyes right in front of them? Later on, colleagues and friends of Kamalo would speak anonymously to journalists and tell of a Jekyll and Hyde-type personality that they could now see in hindsight. It seems clear that Kamalo was an expert manipulator, and he truly believed that people would have no choice but to believe him if he just stuck to his story. Unfortunately for him, the evidence was shouting so loudly at that point that his denials were being drowned out almost entirely. Victim after victim testified about the horrific experiences they'd suffered at the hands of Fanwell Kamalo, and how their lives had been impacted by the rapes. Many of the girls were still terrified of police officers, despite now knowing that Kamalo had lied about that. Several of the victims had had to repeat the grades they were in when the attacks happened because they'd been unable to focus on their schooling. Excellent students were reduced to barely scraping by with pass marks, and happy, content young girls became withdrawn, anxious shells of themselves. One of the most incredible testimonies was delivered by a young girl who'd been going to the shops for her mom when Kamala had lured her away. She described the horrendous attack, and then explained that when Kamala had told her to clean herself, she'd thought back to something she heard in school about how to catch a rapist you needed some of their semen. She'd purposefully only pretended to clean herself, and also kept some of the remnants of the rape clutched in her hand, which she then handed over when her mother rushed her to the clinic after hearing of her ordeal. The bravery and presence of mind that this little girl showed it's just unbelievable. And I think it's also a testament to the importance of education in schools around these matters. That victim's case was one of the ones positively linked through DNA to Fanwell Kamalo. After 93 days of evidence, Judge Max Laib prepared to pass down judgment his detailed judgment would last four days and addressed each of the 132 charges against Kumalo, leaving little room for later appeal on the basis of inconsistency. Through the language used by the judge, it soon became clear that things were not looking good for the defense and ultimately Kumalo would be found guilty of 103 of the 132 charges against him, including 39 counts of rape, 3 of attempted rape, 17 of indecent assault, 35 of kidnapping, 8 of robbery, and 1 of common assault. In the sentencing phase of the trial, Kumalo was given the opportunity to address the court in mitigation of sentence. The start of his rhetoric surprised everyone, when he said he wanted to apologize to the victims. But then it became clear that absolutely nothing had changed when he continued by saying that his apology was that taxpayers' money and the victims' time had been wasted by the court because the court had found someone guilty of these crimes when he was not the guilty party. He went on to say that the people who were responsible for what he saw as a miscarriage of justice would be dealt with by God. When the judge asked him if that was a threat to him, Kumalo backtracked and clarified he meant the detectives who'd arrested him. In aggravation of sentence, the state called Dr. Gerard Labaskagni, the then head of the investigative psychology unit, to the stand. And it all got a little weird with Kamalo and his defense attorney at that point. Dr. Labaskagni took the stand to testify as to the nature of pedophilia and how unlikely it is that a serial child rapist could ever be rehabilitated. Before commencing their cross-examination, Kamalo's attorney accused Dr. Labaskagni of being an imposter He claimed that the man in the witness box was actually a person that Kamalo had worked with in the past and not a doctor or an SAPS member. Before Labaskakny's testimony could be delivered, he had to produce his identity documents to prove to the defense that he was indeed who he said he was. By August 2004, the judge was ready to hand down sentence. In a scathing sentence pronouncement, Judge Leib called Kamalo a callous pedophile who had not shown any remorse for his crimes, had terrified his victims, and had no prospect of rehabilitation. He underpinned how Kamalo had ridiculously continued to deny his guilt despite the DNA evidence and even tried to claim he didn't have a squint eyes or a limp. Leib sentenced Kumalo to 42 life sentences for 38 rapes and 4 attempted rapes. He got a further 78 years for 17 indecent assaults, 180 years for kidnapping, 8 years for 8 robberies, and 6 months for common assault. It was the longest sentence handed down to any sex offender with minor victims in South Africa at that point and remains so. It may, however, be superseded when Gerard Ackerman is sentenced for his 700 charges later this year. Although he probably would not have realized it at the time, the timing of Fanwell Kamala's sentencing was extremely fortuitous for him. September 2004, just one month after Kamala was sentenced, would become the cut-off point for offenders with a life sentence to benefit from the FANVAC judgments, which means that the Minimum Sentences Act, which denoted that those handed down life sentences would be required to serve a minimum period of 25 years in jail, did not apply to those sentenced during the period specified by the judgment. This minimum period does not apply to Fanwell Kamala, and as such, he became eligible for parole in 2018, just 14 years after he was sentenced. He has been denied parole on every occasion he's appeared, and although I don't have a ton of confidence in our current parole system, I will say that the 42 life sentences thing should most certainly count against him ever being granted parole fingers crossed. In the opinion of some of the experts that reviewed this case, Fanwell Kamalo was not far from escalating to murder. His crimes had become increasingly violent and it's very likely that at some point he would no longer have allowed his victims to leave alive. What is absolutely without doubt is that as we've seen in so many other serial sex offender cases, if he were to be released from prison today, he would most certainly continue raping, and he very likely would no longer leave any witnesses alive to testify. It's quite overwhelming to think about the magnitude of what this man has done. One rape is undoubtedly too much, and it's bad enough when it happens to an adult. But for this to have happened to children, just beggars belief. The immense impact that this has on a young life simply cannot be measured. What does stand out for me in the stories told by this man's victims on the stand, though, is their incredible courage. Firstly, The immense bravery that it would take to be on the stand and speak about their trauma in front of a room full of strangers, and the man who so significantly changed their lives, is unbelievable. But in addition to that, time after time the survivors spoke of how, despite their terror, they'd gone home or gone to school and spoken about what had happened. Some had saved evidence that had directly contributed to the convictions. Others had seared the memory of that man's face into their minds, despite them, I'm certain, wanting to completely obliterate it from their memories forever. I have no doubt that there are victims of Kamala who did not get justice when he was convicted. Considering the enormity of his series, there would have to be survivors out there who either didn't come forward or whose cases were not adequately linked. This does not in any way detract from their bravery because the most courageous thing these young girls do every day is wake up, open their eyes, and refuse to allow this poor excuse for a human being to steal another second of their lives court or no court conviction or no conviction that for me at least is where the power lies for every single one of these survivors not in the rapist owning up to his horrendous actions or even in the number of life sentences handed down but simply in continuing to live rape is an act of power not sex. I can think of nothing more pathetic than a person who seeks to take that power from an innocent child. If Fanwell Kamalo thought that he was gaining power by hunting down and raping these girls, he was as deluded as he appeared to be in court. Their power was never his to take. And now, slowly... Gradually, they will rebuild their lives and he will remain as powerless as he deserves to be. Behind bars, locked away from society if there's any justice for the rest of his natural life. To all the survivors of this horrendous crime, your names may not be known to us but your strength of spirit is clear. Live in power. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Change in One Generation. To hear amazing stories of change, go to changepodcast.co.ca. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show.